Welcome back to Bible Time. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to follow the um, kind of split off from Colossians in this, as far as the textual teaching that we've been doing. Uh, but this ties directly in with the theme that we've been um, observing there in Colossians of the old man, the new man. We want to look at another aspect of the old man and the new man today in Mark chapter 9, if you go there in your Bible. Um, now this will be something that is foundational to what's coming up in Colossians 3, um, as we see in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, and goes on there. But we're not teaching on that verse. It's just it's foundational for what we're looking at next. And this is something that's been this topic we're going to look at today is new revelation, new revelation. Now, the without an understanding of the new revelation that God has given, it's um, you can look at that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and you can come up with all kinds of applications and misunderstandings. Um, also with the old, with the new revelation that we have, the word of God, if you don't understand that really everything that we're studying falls by the wayside because there's no authority. The very thing that set Jesus apart from all the scribes and the Pharisees was that he taught them as one having authority. And the reason he had authority is because he was speaking the word of Christ, which is the epitome of authority. Mark chapter 9. Let's get into our text this morning. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there, appear, and there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias, for he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. Now before we go on there, I just want to observe that Jesus had just got done in Mark 9, 1, saying that there be some of them standing that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And then he takes Peter and James and John. Peter was one of the first of the apostles. James um, James here, the brother of John, would be beheaded shortly after Christ rose. Shortly after Christ rose. John would be the one that lived the longest. Peter would live somewhere in the middle ground. I did not look up the dates that historians assign to the deaths of these men. It can be useful and somewhat valuable, but ultimately it is no better than um, educated speculation because they don't really have the authority of the Word of God. Historians do not. We can glean some stuff from them, but ultimately the Word of God is the only book that you can trust. And as God did not give us dates for these men's deaths, I don't really lay a whole lot of stock in it. But we can get a little bit from history. And um, so here, Peter and James and John, which make they really represented the 12 apostles, they're taken up to see Christ transfigured. And when that happened, we have this text that Jesus said, There be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. What a strange saying. Jesus in another place said, They that believe on me shall never taste death. Shall never taste death. So, some, so here we have a double or more fulfillment of this in that these that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ would not taste death Till they see the kingdom of God come with power would mean that they would actually be have eternal life just like Jesus said they would. So therefore, they would see the kingdom of God come with power without tasting death, which gives basically Christ whatever latitude to work whatever timing he wants without man being able to pry into it and try and make him say things that he didn't say. But secondly, this also has a direct fulfillment in that three of the twelve, which would be the sum of them, that would appear to taste death, humanly speaking, though they would never taste death, spiritually speaking, death being the eternal separation from God, being cast into the lake of fire, being the second death, um, that these three men 
would be taken up into the mountain and see Jesus Christ in his kingdom in power, standing in Israel in his glorified body, in his glorified apparel with a resurrected Moses and Elias standing there talking to him. So here he was, and they saw this great sight. Now, they didn't just see a vision. All you Bible doubters and Bible deniers out there can say what you want. These men did not just see a vision. These men saw a time lapse. They saw a, 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 a rift in time and space. They saw Jesus Christ standing fully glorified in his glorified body with Moses and Elias talking to him. They saw an incredible thing here. And Peter was sore afraid. We're going to look at what he said about this in just a moment. Peter was sore afraid. It says, for he wist not what to say. And that always bothered Peter quite a bit. Peter needed to say things. If Peter couldn't say things, he just wasn't comfortable with the situation. And he was sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. Now, um, let's look at first, Second Peter 1. Second Peter 1. Turn there quickly. You can hold your place in Mark chapter 9 because we'll be back there. Second Peter 1. Here, Peter, in, at a much later date, much later time, is going to reference that exact event that we read about in Mark chapter 9. So in one sixteen, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and, the, and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice that he did not say, we saw a vision of what Jesus would be like. He, said, he did not say we had a dream, we fell into a trance. Now, this is beyond most things that anybody would ever even claim. This goes beyond what Paul saw whenever Paul said, I was caught up into the third heaven and saw things that were not lawful to be uttered. This goes beyond any vision, any, any trance, any kind of extra, body, extra bodily um, experience that somebody might have where they think that they're out of their body or maybe they even are. I had a man in Flagstaff, Arizona, rest his salvation on his experience of seeing a light come towards him while he was near death at an operating table. And he saw a light come towards him and then go away. And because of that light, he rests his eternal soul on the hope of salvation because he saw a light. So therefore, because he believes that the light was heaven that he saw, he believes he's going to heaven. And his faith is based on his vision that he saw and no matter what scriptures I gave him from the word of God, he would not be moved and he would not be shaken in his unfounded faith in eternal life, his hope in eternal life, unbiblical faith. His faith was in his experience, not in the word of God, which is not biblical faith at all. Now, when it comes to visions and to trances and to seeing things, people write books. There's books out there, um, 40 minutes in hell, 40 seconds in hell, three minutes in heaven. People write all these books, all kinds of stuff. I don't read them. I, I, just, I just walk right by them. I pay them absolutely no attention whatsoever. And that's we're going to basically do that right now. I don't even want to get distracted with it too much. I just want to leave it to say that if you're going to take what those people say and and take it as fact, then you are trusting some man's experience. Peter here is not trusting even an experience, out-of-body experience. He is What he's saying here is we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We haven't followed these, these carefully constructed stories of men. And this is what modern scholars will say that the Bible is. It was written by men. There was one man that told me that he hated the Apostle Paul because without Paul and Jesus, there would be no Christianity and how clever Paul was to make up Christianity. Peter here is debunking that thought process that is a lie from Satan. He said, we have not followed cunningly devised fables fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ the power and coming these two things he says listen 
but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter saw Jesus Christ in his majesty. James and John were there with him. They don't have to guess about who Jesus was. That's what, that's what Peter is saying here. Listen to me. That's what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying, I saw Jesus in his majesty. I don't have to ask the question. I don't have to wonder who Jesus is. I saw him in his glorified body. I saw him in his majesty. I saw him in his kingdom with resurrected Moses and resurrected Elias, who's Elijah standing right next to him and talking to him. I saw the kingdom of God come with power. You say, well, why isn't it here yet? Because what they saw was somehow God let them see forward into the future. But what they saw was reality. God shifted time. And there they were standing in the kingdom, in the power, in the kingdom. At that moment, somehow, it was beyond a vision. It was the actual transfiguration of Christ where he appeared in his kingdom. But you say his kingdom wasn't there yet. That doesn't make sense. Well, no, it doesn't really make sense if you're locked into time. But God's not locked into time. How many of you know that it is not 12 o'clock in heaven? How many of you know it is not June the 18th in heaven? July the 18th is today's date. How many of you know it's not July the 18th in heaven? Did you let me let me just blow your minds a little bit here? And this is biblical. Did you know that Jesus says that if you're saved, that you were saved before the foundations of the world? Before God made the world. Did you know that the Bible says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world? God doesn't operate in our timeline. You've got to throw that out. You've got to get your restrictions off of God. The restrictions that God placed on you apply to you, but they don't apply to God. God doesn't have to wear a watch and he doesn't have to keep his appointments. Did you know, think about this one for just a second. Let's just think about this. And I don't want to get into doubtful disputations, but I do want us to get a healthy fear of God and a little bit of our unhealthy high-mindedness blown out of the way by the reality of the awesomeness of God. Did you know that God can talk to Job? God can talk to Job right now while Job sits and scrapes his boils, and it wouldn't bother God at all. You say, wait a second, right now is about is at least... 2,000 or 3,000 years after Job, how could God talk to him right now? You're not getting it. God is not bound by time. Did you know that right now to God doesn't exist in the sense of him being bound by it? Did you know that God could simultaneously deal with every person that ever lived past, present, and future on the face of the whole earth and it won't bother him? Think about that. Think about that for a second, that God can talk to Adam, God can talk to Cain, God can talk to Abraham, God can talk to me, God can talk to the people in the new heaven and the new earth all at the same time without even giving him the least bit of a fit. You say, how is that possible? I don't know. But God is outside of time. God is not bound by time. There is no time that God is bound by. God moves outside of the bounds of time. You say, that doesn't make any sense. I can't see how that work would work. That's because you have a God who in your mind is subject to the law of time. And so you think that God has to operate within the sense of time on this earth, and he doesn't. God can operate completely outside of time because he made time. God operates outside the sense of gravity because he made gravity. God operates outside the realm of time and space. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But now that we've said all of that, let's rein it back in. God in his sovereignty and God in his power chooses to operate and to interact with man based on man's limitations. 
And if you don't know about that about God, you're going to go way off the deep end and come up with some kind of science fiction God. And we don't want that either. It's got to be bound by the Bible. And so within the word of God, the word of God tells us the laws of God and the nature of God and the laws of God and nature of God. God has chosen to govern his interactions with man by. And that's another mind blower. Why does God, who is sovereign, choose to allow man to make a choice about anything? Now, I know some of you out there say that man doesn't make any choices. God makes all the choices, and that's because you have a little bitty brain. And your little bitty brain has become the jail within which you have placed God in your own imagination. And you can't get outside of that little bitty jail. So you're kind of stuck and you're theologically stuck until you get over it. So God sovereignly chooses to allow man choices in certain things in his life. Same kind of idea. So what's right? The free will of man or the sovereignty of God? Both are true. Both are in the Bible. Both are there, but they don't fit in our minds. So you have a choice. You can either try to redefine God so that you can make him fit inside your little bitty brain, or you can believe what God said. And if you believe what God said, that's okay. Leave it alone. If you believe what God said, then you move on with what God said. So here, Jesus Christ came. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter, we said all that to establish that Peter saw he was an eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus in his kingdom before he had died, before he was buried, before he rose from the dead, before he came back, before he put down all his enemies and established rule and right before the millennial reign, before any of those things, Peter saw Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness. That's quite an experience, isn't it? Who here has seen that? Raise your hand if you have seen that. I've not seen that. And no one here has seen that. And in fact, I've never met anybody that claimed to see that. Even the most far out characters that I've ever met haven't been willing or able to even justify lying about that though they'll lie they'll make some big ones make some big lies but not that now here peter says in second peter chapter 1 and verse 17 for he received from god the father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased now that is the statement that god made to jesus christ as he came up out of the water from his baptism with john which is another incredible revelation there john the baptist saw jesus coming as he came up out of the water he saw the heavens open and the Spirit of God as a dove come down and rest upon Jesus Christ and a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He heard the audible voice of God. Now, some people claim that they hear the audible voice of God. I've never met anyone yet that can claim that they have heard the audible voice of God that could tell me that what they heard lined up with Scripture. Every time I meet somebody that claims to have heard the audible voice of God, it seems like, if I remember right, every single one of them has something anti-biblical that they say that God said. And so I very much doubt what they, that they heard God at all. I believe they heard an evil spirit, if that's the case, if your word doesn't line up with Scripture. So here Peter says, you've got these two events. You have the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus Christ was altered before Peter, and Peter and James and John saw Jesus in his glory, and then you have his um, baptismal whenever he came up out of the waters and the Spirit of God descended on, on him like a dove. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, please open our hearts, open our understanding. I cannot teach anything worth listening to. Your Holy Spirit must teach, or this is all a waste of time. I don't want to waste my time your time especially, Lord, and I don't want to waste anybody else's time. Please help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Anoint your, your servant, Lord, and help him, Lord, to preach and to teach what you'd have him to preach and teach. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Peter gets done referencing these events. Peter was one of those that Jesus called from being a fisherman. 
Peter had been out in the deep, just a plain old fisherman, but he had become an eyewitness of the glory of God. He had become an eyewitness of the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 19, he makes a shocking statement, a statement that it would do you well to get ingrained in your heart. He says here, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. So this more sure, more sure than what? Word of prophecy. Now, to get this, we need to look at the word prophecy really quick. The word prophecy means to proclaim God's word in the biblical sense, to proclaim the word of God. So the word of prophecy is the proclamation of what God said. So Peter said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. So this word that God said that we have must then be more sure than something he's been talking about. And what has he been talking about? Who remembers? What have we been talking about all morning? The events that we just talked about. The Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transfigured before him and he saw Jesus in the power and majesty of his kingdom in the future. How many of you would like to see into the future? How would you like to see and be able to just peel open time and look through a crack and see 10 years down the road? And see what's happening. Anybody would like to be able to do that. Peter, James, and John got to see the future. They got It wasn't even a vision. It was the literal future. They saw Jesus Christ in his kingdom. You say, you've gone off the deep end. No, I haven't. That's what the Bible says. You just don't believe the Bible. The Bible says that they saw Jesus in his kingdom. And that's what they saw. They literally saw the future. And then they also saw the Spirit of God descend from heaven and light upon Jesus there. James and John had been there for that one. As John the Baptist had just baptized Jesus. And those great events and those amazing revelations, unparalleled revelations, Peter says here in verse 19, are not as sure as the word of prophecy that we have. Not as sure as the proclamation of God that we have available to us. And he says, we have it. This isn't something that's locked away in a monastery somewhere. This isn't something that's inaccessible. He says, no, we have this. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. And then guess what? Look at what he says about it. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. Pay attention. That's what Peter said. Pay attention. You wanted to look into the future. You wanted to, you did. You raised your hand. You raised your hand that you wanted to look into the future. Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. I'm holding up my Bible to you. The word of God. Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. How many of you love to be in the dark all by yourself? No hands raised. So let's just imagine that um, where we're currently at here, there's a field down across the way and some big bluffs and dark forest over there with a river on the other side. And let's just imagine that one of you um, got stuck out there and the night came and the coyotes were howling and it was dark and it was scary and all of a sudden in the distance you saw a little faint light. Would that give you hope? Would you want that light to come closer to you? Maybe. Well, not very many animals have lights on them. But what if you saw that light in the dark, dark darkness and you could see just enough light that it gave you enough light to start going towards it? Would you start sneaking up on the light to see what it was? Because maybe it would be something safe. Maybe it would be something that would help you. Maybe it would be a way of escape from the situation you were in. Peter says you need to look at this more sure word of prophecy like a light that shineth in a dark place. There's the light. You ought to go towards it. Take heed to it until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. 
we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Lord, I am weak to even teach this the way it needs to be taught. Please just let your Holy Spirit reveal this truth to us today. We're talking today about a new revelation. You see, you have an old man. If you're lost, that's all you are is just an old man, spiritually speaking. But when you're saved, you've got a new man. But what is it that brings the old man through to become a new man? There's a new revelation. That new revelation is the more sure word of prophecy. And that more sure word of prophecy is more sure, listen to me, more sure than being an eyewitness of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. This Bible is more sure. You say, now how do you know that this Bible is that more sure word of prophecy? Well, there's many scriptures that give us that, but let's just keep reading here first. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. You need to sit up straight and pay attention right there. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. No prophecy of what? Of the scripture. So here Peter tells us that the more sure word of prophecy is the word of scripture. The scripture. The scripture. And at this time when Peter was writing this, there wasn't a whole lot of scripture that was even known to be scripture. This was primarily in his day, the Old Testament that he was talking about. So all of you guys that throw out the Old Testament... Better take, a better, better take a second look. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. So, if the Scripture is of no private interpretation, what does it mean there? It means that it has one interpretation. We've addressed this in passing before. We're looking at it in more detail today. This prophecy could not be more sure if it had multiple interpretations. That might be over some of your heads. Think about it for a minute. Now, if I make a statement like, go outside. If I make that statement, and one of you says, well, that means go outside right now. And the next one says, no, I think it means go outside tomorrow. And the next one says, well, I think he was talking to that guy. And that guy over there says, I think he was talking to that gal. And then all of you sit around and all you do is talk about what I said and none of you obey it. That's private interpretations. Each one of you making up your own version of what you think that I said. And that's what we have going on today in our land is private interpretations. The Bible says that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, how can you maintain that the Bible is of no private interpretation? We all have opinions. He gives us the answer to that question too. Look at verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Whoa. Wait a second. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Well, how did we get the prophecy if it didn't come by the will of man? Now, the will is that by which you decide to do something. In other words, what Peter is saying here is that no man, no man sat down and decided to write the Bible ever. No man ever sat down and said, I think I'm going to write some verses, and those verses are what became the Bible. The Bible, it says, was given to us by holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Look at that there in verse 21. For the prophecy came not, get your Bible out and look at it. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now your will is what moves you. Your will is what makes your decisions. So whenever you're sitting and I say to you, stand up. Stand up. All the way. Stand up right next to your chair. Look at that. He stood up right next to his chair. I did not make him stand up physically, but I altered his will. 
He did not will to stand up. I willed that he stand up. And I commanded that he stand up. And he obeyed. What a good little boy he was to do that. And he obeyed and he stood up. So my will was imposed upon him verbally by a commandment, not physically. And he moved based upon my will. The Bible says here, for the prophecy came not, you can have a seat, thank you for illustrating that, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What this is literally saying is that the prophecy of Scripture in context, that the prophecy of Scripture was given to us not by decision or art or feeling or emotion or any other aspect of man, but by the will of God, that holy men of God, separated men of God, obedient men of God, who had God's interests in mind and in heart, who had submitted themselves to the authority and sovereignty of Almighty God and yielded their free will to become a yielded will in service of the king of kings and lord of lords and their yielded will was moved upon by the will of god and when the will of god said to moses say in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth Moses said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that the words that Moses said, though they came out of Moses' mouth, were not Moses' words, but rather the words of Almighty God. That God himself had willed and God himself had commanded and a holy man of God had obeyed and the prophecy was then spoken through an obedient servant who was no more than a conduit, no more than the pipeline through which the holy oil flowed to the lamp. Thy, the entrance of thy words giveth light, the Bible says. The law is a light. The law is a light. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But the light is able to burn upon the candlestick because of the flow of the oil through the pipe. And the men, the holy men of God, were the golden branches of the candlestick. The light is God's word and the oil is the spirit of God moving through those holy men to produce a holy flame the light of God's word so that they are not speaking their words they are speaking the very word of God so this is why Peter said we have also a more sure word of prophecy if it was up to Peter if it was up to Paul, if it was up to Timothy or any other man, if it was up to Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John to come up with the words and say the words and speak the words, then it would have been a sham. And this book would be a joke. And it would be nothing but the opinions of men. But that's not what we have here today. He said, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. So we have a new revelation here. And that new revelation gives birth to a new day. It says here, till the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. And this is another application of the effect of a man being born again whenever you believe the word of God the more faith you place in the word of God the more light is shown in your heart until finally you can conceive and comprehend in your heart not just in your head that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and as the light of God's word illuminates your darkened mind if our gospel be hid, it is hid because the God of this world will have blinded the minds of them that believe not. And as the light shines in your blinded mind and God peels back the layers and begins to give you sight and illumination of what the word of God means for you, that it means eternal life. It means freedom from the wrath of God. It means an escape from a devil's hell. It means 
an escape from the righteous indignation of a holy, wrathful God who has every right and must judicially cast you into the lake of fire for your sins and as the realization of what that means for you dawns and bursts in your heart and that day star dawns in your heart the new man is born it is through the new revelation of God's word that the new man can experience the new birth and there will be a new creature all of which we've talked about which results in a new walk and the new walk everything that we've talked about hinges on and rests upon this new revelation of God's word and God's will. Now Job did not have the new revelation. Job said in Job 31 um, as he wrapped up his closing statements and then he would end in Job 31:40 with the words of Job are ended in his arguments with his friends. He said there in verse 35, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me and that mine adversary had written a book. Now, Job had called God his adversary. He couldn't understand the nature of God, why God was doing what he was doing. He was trying to serve God, and yet God had allowed all these bad things to happen in his life. And the consolation Job cried out for was for new revelation. He said, oh, that my adversary had written a book. And then listen to how he would treasure that if he had access to it. Surely I would take it upon my shoulder and bind it as a crown to me. That was the estimation Job said that he would place on a book written by God. And here Peter has just told us that we have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye should ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day star dawn, until the day dawn and the day star dawn in your heart. I may have messed that up. Let me find that reference again. Until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, if there, if no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, then why do so many people disagree about the Bible? Well, just because you have a private interpretation doesn't mean it's right. There is only one right interpretation of the scriptures. There are many applications of the one true right interpretations. So how do you know who's right? Oh, it's just Mr. Burks who's doing the podcast. He's right about everything. No, actually, I'm not. I'm wrong very regularly, and God has to correct me. But how does he correct me? Through the new revelation, through the word. Well, how do you know you're right about anything? Well, that's a good question, but if it's asked in sincerity, we know that we're right and we know that we have arrived at the correct interpretation of Scripture when we take the whole counsel of God, which is what God says to do, and compare Scripture with Scripture. And when you compare Scripture with Scripture and verse with verse and word with word and phrase with phrase and look at the context and see how God spoke what he spoke, you can logically, with the power of the Spirit of God and the mind that God gave you, God didn't want you to be an idiot. That's why he gave you a brain. And with the brain God gave you, coupled with the Spirit of God and a submissive willingness to the commands of God, you can uncover by the power of God the interpretation of the word of God. It is not mystical. It is very simple. One of the things we've been talking about through this whole discussion of the old man and new man is the reality of spirituality. That spirituality is not some kind of mystic, ephemeral, fog and smoke and mirror stuff. It's not magician hat tricks. The spirituality is taking the word of God literally for what it says, believing it, and the spirit of God illuminating your heart to the truth of it so that you can comprehend the truths of God in your heart. Now, this where Peter said that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation begs an, a very poignant question. Why are there over 200 and some Bible versions in English and they don't agree with each other? Because men have private interpretations. That's why. You see, the word of God was not ever to be interpreted by man. It's supposed to be understood, rightly divided and understood by man. Excuse you. That was distracting. Sorry about that. 
So the word of God was designed to be um, rightly divided and understood by man, not interpreted by man. 99.999% or so, I don't know, uh, but almost all of them except one modern so-called versions of the Bible are interpretations of the Bible, and they could not and cannot legitimately be classified as even versions of a translation. They are interpretations. They are interpretive. They take what the Bible should have said, so they say. They take what God meant to say, so they say. They take what the manuscript should have said, and they then translate what they say it should have said into English instead of translating what it said. There is only one Bible that is an accurate translation of the Word of God into English, and it is the authorized version known also as the King James Bible to some people, King James Version authorized version, which King James had nothing to do with preserving. God used King James to make it legal to remove the persecution. But King James did not interpret it. He did not translate it. King James was merely the instrument that God used to legalize a Bible that people were already dying, literally being burnt at the stake to possess and to translate. William Tyndall gave his life at the stake, burned at the stake, and they they estimate that 63% of the Bible, the entire New Testament in the authorized version, and much of the Old Testament was translated directly by William Tyndale on the run from the Catholic and Anglican church, primarily the Catholic. Now, if I remembered that wrong about the Anglican, forgive me, but the Anglican persecuted as much as anybody. We'll get into some of that stuff when we look at the new church um, coming up in the next study. A lot, All of our groups that we've got are not of the Lord. In fact, whenever you get a group, you most likely have lost, have left the Lord behind. But we'll get into that more later. Psalms 12 verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. And it goes on and says, Thou wilt keep them, O Lord. And he says, Forever. Thou wilt keep them, O Lord, forever. Now, if God does not keep his words, then the word is private interpretations. If God left his word to be preserved by a man, which is a deistic philosophy, then we only have private interpretations left today. You see, the deists, people who call themselves deists, who knows what a deist is? Raise your hand if you know. All right, a deist believes that God spun the world like a top on a table. And when he spun the world, he sat back to watch it spin, and he's still sitting there watching it, and he doesn't have anything to do with it. He doesn't change anything. He just, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. And God's up there in heaven watching some kind of show that he started and just waiting for the show to be over. And that's a lie from Satan. It's not scriptural. It's unfounded in the Bible. But then we take around, and in our evangelical, fundamentalist churches, even all across the nation and throughout the world, we accept the lie of Satan that though God was not deistic in his creation of the world, we somehow assent to an idea that the same God who would have care in the sparrow that falls and in every hair of your head and the number thereof, that that same God would somehow spin the Bible into existence say the words off the cuff and then leave them to be interpreted and used and slandered and libeled and everything else all across the world without any care for the preservation of his holy word which is absolutely inconceivable and satanically idiotic and foolish it's completely inconsistent to think such a thing about God. You people who will argue over whether or not you actually said something and you'll dig up emails and find email proof that you said what you said. You will carefully review a contract before you sign it and you'll keep a copy and, and the other person will keep a copy and they'll log a copy at the courthouse to make sure that the contract is fulfilled to the letter. And yet you think that a sovereign God who spun the universe into existence by the word of his mouth is going to say stuff off the cuff pertaining to the eternal redemption and salvation of your soul and then leave it up to fallen sinful depraved man whose hearts are desperately wicked to preserve it and if Johnny goes to hell because I didn't take care of my Bible it's his fault what kind of a God do you serve if you believe in that kind of junk 
You don't even have the God of the Bible. It is absolutely outside the entire concept of the nature of a holy, righteous, just, sovereign God. You who say that you believe in the sovereignty of Almighty God and you don't even believe in the free will of man and yet you say that man by his free will altered the scriptures of a sovereign God and the scriptures are no longer sovereign to you so you can pick and choose what you want to believe and what you say truth is and which version you like best and you claim you believe a sovereign God I say to you with all due respect and with love in my heart and not one ounce of anger in me you sir are the epitome of a liar and a hypocrite you have defied the faith that you claim to believe you say you believe a sovereign God but you do not believe in the sovereign word of God what a contradiction what a hypocrisy if God Almighty can make your ears and Adam's ears all end up on the side of your heads after 6,000 years, God can keep the human genome straight so your noses are still right in between your two eyes and we still don't have five-armed people popping out anywhere. There's an occasional genetic mutation, but the human genome is still intact. And to the same, in the same exact way, God has allowed man to mutate copies of his word, but he has never failed to keep a perfectly preserved, divinely inspired, 100% accurate copy of his word available to man. He has never failed to do it, and he never will fail to do it. It flies in the face of the very nature of God. Anyone that begins to challenge the sovereignty of God's word has absolutely no right to preach the sovereignty of God in redemption or any other part of walk of life. And you heard me right. You heard me right. Psalms 119.89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. You say, oh, God's word is settled in heaven, but not on earth. What kind of a theologian are you? You don't even believe God. Psalms 100 verse 5, for the Lord is good. His truth endureth to all generations. Generations are a earthly time and space bound phenomena. Generations have nothing to do with heaven. And yet here God says forever, forever. He says, for the Lord is good. His truth endureth to all generations. That is a earthly, temporal situation, but God's truth endureth to all generations. You say, oh, but only part of the truth endures. Excuse me, sir. What do you tell your son whenever you ask him what he did and he tells you half of the truth? and leaves half of it out, what do you tell him? You tell him he has deceived you, and he is telling you a half-truth, and that that is deceptive, and on the border grounds of lying. And you tell me that God has only preserved for us half of his truth, and I tell you that you have accused God of being deceptive. A borderline liar. That's the accusation you make against God whenever you claim that he has only preserved part of his word. The word says in Psalm 100 verse 5, we just read it, for the Lord is good, his truth endureth to all generations. Generations. That means Adam had the truth of God. It means Job had the truth of God. It means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had the truth of God. It means that Timothy and Titus with the original manuscripts of the New Testament in their hands had the truth of God. And it means that Joshua, Michael, a nobody from the Ozark Hills in Missouri today can and does hold the perfectly preserved, inspired and complete and infallible truth of God in his hands. Hallelujah. His truth endureth to all generations. Proverbs 30 verse 5 and verse 6 says, every word of God is pure. Every word. What does that mean, Mr. Edward? Every word. Does that mean all the words except 2%? Like a major theologian on the radio? And I don't mind saying his name. Mr. John MacArthur on the radio said the Bible's 98% accurate. You, sir, have called God a liar. 
you will be judged. And now he's gone on to make a crazy, terrible, edited Bible. And that just figures because by the time you start calling God a liar in one spot, you'll move on and do it everywhere else. Every word means 100%, doesn't it? That's pretty plain, isn't it? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Jeremiah was told to speak all the words that I command thee and to write them in a book. And when the king burnt the book, Jeremiah said, get your paper out. I've got a whole lot more where that came from because he was tied in with God. And he was a holy man who was being moved by God, by the Holy Spirit of God. And he wrote a book. Daniel read his book, by the way. This book exists because there has been a book. And God has preserved his book. And if it wasn't for God's preservation, there wouldn't be a Christianity to even call Christianity. Most of what people call Christianity reflects the books they carry under their arms if they even bother carrying a Bible at all. And that is 98 or less percent accurate. By the way, anything less than perfect is 100% imperfect. Do you hear me today? If it is not perfect, it is 100% imperfect. And God claimed that his word is perfect. Ecclesiastes speaks of it. Um, the Matthew, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, lowercase w with a plural s on the end, my words shall not pass away. You say, what on earth is the big deal? Why are you so been out of shape about this? I'm not been out of shape. I'm excited. I'm excited, I'm joyful, I am grateful because I have the very word of God. John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you have not got the perfectly preserved word of God, you do not have the truth of God. You say, oh, my Bible contains the truth of God. Your Bible may contain some parts of God's word. But you do not have the truth of God in its entirety, and therefore you are open and susceptible to damnable heresies. It's no coincidence, maybe we'll touch this when we talk about the new church, that every church group has its own favorite Bible version. It's no coincidence. John 6 and verse 63, because you can pick your Bible version that proves your doctrinal preferences. And that's called private interpretations. Jesus said here, after his discussion of how his flesh is, is, is flesh is the bread and his blood is the drink. He says, my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. People were leaving him over it. They couldn't figure it out. Um, the... The dear Catholic people have have still butchered this one up to this day. Absolutely missed what he said because right here in verse 63, he gives you the answer to the whole thing. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And this ties in the whole discussion of the new revelation, the literal physical word of God and the reality of spirituality that we face right here before us. That the spirit... Spiritual things are found in the literal, physical, perfectly preserved word of God. And those two things, those two points are not contradictory. That in fact, the literal, perfectly preserved word of God is proof of the living reality of spirituality. Because only God, who is a spirit, could, prove, could perfectly preserve his word, could inspire his word, and could write such a book as this is that we hold in our hands today. Go back to 2 Peter and we will end. 2 Peter here, he is, Peter is speaking of the two greatest experiences. <clears throat> Both of them done in the body beyond even the comprehension of most who would claim an out-of-body experience. As powerful as an out-of-body experience may be, how much more powerful would an in-body spiritual experience be? <clears throat> And if you don't think it'd be more powerful, you, you've got some kind of mystical idea of spirituality. 
but the spiritual reality of what Peter saw literally and physically was so powerful that he called himself an eyewitness of the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here, we have also a more sure word of prophecy wherein to ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is the new revelation. The new revelation, the spiritual and literal and perfectly preserved word of God that we have in English in the authorized version Bible is the completion and the perfection of that which is spiritual revelation. I forgot that we were going there. I apologize, but we're going to go ahead and go there. Revelation chapter 10, and I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was upon his head and his face was as it were the sun and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard from heaven a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. And the angel which I saw standing upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things that are there in that there should be time no longer but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he shall begin to sound the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets as he hath declared to his servants the prophets here we see that God declared his mystery to the prophets God spoke the word not man it came not by the will of man we see the word of God encapsulated in a book held in the hand of an angel but preached and believed by men. The preservation of the word of God is outside the scope and the reach of any kind of man-made institution or organization because God himself will and has preserved his word forever, O Lord. Thy words are settled in heaven and he's promised that they will endure unto all generations. He's able, if the king burns every copy, God can have a new one in print, perfect and preserved without any manuscript lying. He doesn't have to have, God doesn't have to have all the manuscripts. That's something we need as a crutch. God doesn't need it. God has the word settled in heaven and God will preserve his word whether, whether man burns every copy or not. Now it says here, and as he hath declared to his servants the prophets, the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, go and take the little book which is open. Notice the time, that time should be no more. And here when time ends, the little book is in the hand of the angel. And as time ends and the seven thunders are uttering their voices, the angel hands the little book to God's man. Do you see it here in the word of God? He says, go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the scene upon the earth and I went unto the angel and said unto him give me the little book and that's my cry to God today give me the little book Lord God Almighty and he's given it to me and he said unto me take it and eat it up and it shall make thy belly bitter and it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey and I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up and it was in my mouth sweet as honey and as soon as I had eaten it my belly was bitter and what was the result in verse Verse 11, and he said unto me, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The basis of the new man, the law for the new man, the understanding of the new man, the reality of the new life that we have in Christ is all based on the new revelation that God has given us through the little book the word of God, which we have perfectly preserved in English, the inspired, infallible, immaculate word of God in the authorized version Bible. Praise the Lord.